All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Now, I got to ask you before, it's a pleasure to come over, and while, while Joe is on much-needed vacation, it's a pleasure to come over and get to do the Rector's Forum from the parenting class, but can you all hear me okay? Oh, yeah. sure. Katie, can you? Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, we're, uh, we got some online, and as well, so I wanted to see if I needed to turn on the microphone or not, but let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious morning you have given us to both worship and to study. And I would pray that as we take a break from Matthew and as we dive into the Acts of the Apostles, I would pray that you just meet us where we are, grow us in relationship with you, let us learn something, and then we give a, let it glorify you and, what, and your learning and formation of us. But we thank you for this time to ask questions and to learn together. Be with us now as we turn to your word. Amen. Amen. So you'll probably wonder why. Um, I mean, I know you've been going through a, a, a long, I think, how long have you been doing, Matthew? Has it been a while now? A while, quite a while. So I don't know if you want to, if you're those that like to plug all the way through or, or if, you, if having a little break for Acts is a good thing for you. But I hope you, uh, either way, I hope it blesses you this morning. Um, and I'll tell you why in in a traditional uh, Episcopal church, normally on the, the lectionary, that if you've been to church or if, you're, if you will go to church, standard here is you, you hear three readings unless it's one of the high holy feast days, and sometimes we do four. But typically the lectionary is done with, with the option of an Old Testament, a psalm or a proverb, and then an, an epistle, New Testament, and a gospel. And you will, um, Joe likes it to do, we do three readings to give a little more sermon time to really dig in on one or a couple of the readings. And that's kind of a little change of how we do it here, which is allowed in the prayer book, but it's really the service of the word and us getting into it. So when he, when he came to me and when he said, uh, hey, um, I'm going to need you to take Rector's Forum and I think it's a good idea if we break from Matthew and you can do whatever you want to do. So Acts 16, and we're going to go a little bit into 17, but this is the fourth reading in the lectionary that we are going to dive deep into today. And then if you've been to church or you'll go to 1115, you will see how it ties into the larger, why the theme of Revelation 21, that you'll hear that the sermon is over, and then the Gospel of John, they all tie together for a message for us on this sixth Sunday of the liturgical season of Easter. So that's a why, Acts 16 and 17, because a lot of the other Episcopal churches will be hearing this and maybe hearing sermons on it this morning. But So that's what we're going to dive into, and I don't know if you have a Bible or a device, or you can just let me read it for you. Um, we'll be going, like, taking uh, bits of uh, Acts 16, and then we'll be breaking it up and going into 17, but talking about it little by little as we go. But this opening is just a kind of a bringing us to the context of where Acts 16 picks up at. So just kind of a, some of this you will know, and it'll be repeat, and, and it, some of it, it, it may educate you a little, but this is the context that brings us into this. In Jerusalem, A.D. 30 is the time Jesus died on the cross. 
And as, as we continue to celebrate the season of resurrection, uh, and he was risen on the third day and then ascended into heaven. Next week we will celebrate the ascension uh, as, as our feast day. Fifty days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. And out of joy, the church was born. Empowered by the Spirit, which we'll celebrate in two weeks on June 5th with the Feast of Pentecost, Peter gave a sermon and 3,000 hearts were transformed, hearing, receiving, and repenting from that sermon that Peter gave. The young church walked in unity and praise. And out of, the, out of joy, the gospel began to create community. Peter and John continued to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000 people. In AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon connecting the Old Testament to Jesus and rebuking the people for their hard hearts. And, you know, we never get to uh, like being rebuked like that, Stephen does, and we know what ends up happening. Enraged, the people stoned Stephen, making him the first Christian martyr. In AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart of Saul, a man who persecuted countless Christians, and we know that story, Saul became Paul. After this conversion, the gospel continued to spread through the ministries of Paul and Peter. God gave Peter a vision, and he first used him to reach the Gentiles. Uh, in AD 44, King Herod Agrippa I executed the apostle James and actually had Peter arrested. But an angel rescued Peter, leading him out of prison. I found it funny in those in those days with those stories, how many times God had to intervene or how all the people that he had transformed their hearts would have all been wiped out. There are several of those stories, but an earthquake happens and Peter is led out. So under that persecution, as the believers were scattered because of uh, persecution, the center of operation turned from Jerusalem to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey in 94 AD, or 49 AD. Through their ministry, the church multiplied. In AD 49, an argument arose over rather it was important for Gentiles to follow Jewish traditions and customs, particularly circumcision. The, Jer the Jerusalem Council sent a letter to the Gentiles affirming that circumcision was not a requirement for salvation. And I share kind of a leading in, but this is the main point I was telling you all of that for. In every day and age, the church faces both persecution and praise and needs gospel strengthening by remembering that salvation comes only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not traditions, not customs, not good works. This is the message that must move forward because the mission doesn't stop. And out of joy, the church multiplies. This is a large theme of the entire book of Acts as we see the church, the apostolic church, spreading all the way into the fourth century as it will become the small C Catholic church. This is what God's doing in their midst. So for us, even today, we are part of this story 
and part of this legacy as we are all disciples and we are all being sanctified and made into saints. So the gospel continues to spread through us. God empowering us with that Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. We, the, this story is now our story. And it continues to unfold. And it's, it's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of us that actually have ties to first century Judaism. We learn from it. And, and what was going on at the time, but we don't know what it was like to be in that day and age with all of the, these things going on. That's why it's good to see in the first century how the church was exploding in the way it did and against the amazing persecution that was coming against it. Now, we're here because the gospel message continued to spread. More hearing and responding to the gospel and more people on one side mocking and trying to destroy it as well as more churches planting and planting and so on. And the gospel coming into hearts and transforming hearts. And as that story continued that we were doing in the, in the summary, by 350 AD, 51% of the Roman Empire will proclaim Christ as Lord. And then we're going to look at both a macro, we're going, to, we're going to start with a micro way in which God, as we continue into Acts 16, came into hearts across three different contexts. And, but I think we can all apply our own lives to a version of all three of the contexts. We're going to talk about how God continues to move in and how the gospel continues to grow us and meet us right where we are. So we'll start at a micro level, and then we'll take it to a macro level of entire cities uh, on the gospel message that here in Acts that we talk about. Before we go any further, are there any comments about what I've said or questions? Well, keep going. Let's keep going. So we'll look at these individuals. Now this is where we'll be in chapter 16, if you're following along. And then we'll continue uh, starting at verse 12. And from there, they went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this is the first person we'll talk about, Lydia. And I like, I really love to talk about Lydia. You've probably heard my stories of woe that two times I have supposed, supposed to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which I think mo mo most of you or a lot of you have been on. And both times it was canceled. So I'm still waiting on my turn to do pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But one of those times that got canceled, they replaced it with the missionary journeys of Paul. So I got to go to the actual place where Lydia was baptized by, by Paul and in the actual river. So this is on something in one of those things in pilgrimage that, that I've been there and been able to picture the actual place that it happened. So it's one of those things I've got a deep love for. 
So Lydia, we actually hear in, in the section of, of Acts that we just read, verses 12 through 15 or 16, that she, Lydia is religious, she is moral, and she has done very well for herself in the domain of fashion. If she's actually selling purple garments, the co- color of royalty and bishops, and she, she has a house, uh, or she is from Thyatira, which is a massive port city in the ancient world. Think New York or London. Back in that day, Thyatira was a place of much economy and much going on. Um, and she has a house in both Thyatira and Philippi. So she's doing, to have in that time, a woman business owner, she's doing really well. And we hear that she already has a religious background of some sorts. Now, she, she has rejected, at this point, Roman paganism. And she's not believing in many gods, but she started listening to the teachings of the Jews and that there is one God. Maybe those Jews are on to something has caught in Lydia's heart. Now, she is morally conservative, upright, and she's going to Bible studies on the Sabbath. And this is where we find uh, Paul coming to her. So it is here at basically her Bethmore Bible study with the ladies that she is the modern, the modern, or her day version of it. Um, the women are there being fed when Paul rolls in and Paul speaks and the text tell us that Lydia's eyes are opened. Her heart is open and she hears Paul and she is baptized. An, an extremely success, successful and wealthy businesswoman who is moral and religious and is actually at church of sorts, but not yet a follower of Christ. In this space, Jesus steps in and changes her heart. So we see, how, how many of us, if we pause and consider the story of Lydia, how is her story, is, is our story similar to hers? How many times, whether we came from a a different faith or how many times, this is, I have a great affection and affinity for the liturgy, but how many times can the liturgy just be us saying the words from rote and not fully being present within them? And I think that's a danger of the liturgy sometimes, but the foundation of it and where it takes us and how it centers us is the beautiful part of it. Maybe sometimes we, we have been, had a religious background, but we had never heard the gospel message or the idea of relationship with Christ and had our heart transformed in the same way that Lydia did. I think it's very easy that we can make a, uh, a case we have been or will be in a similar season in our life. But, and yet we have the grace of God that meets us there and brings us back home. So that is Lydia. Any comments or questions about Lydia? Okay. So now we go from Lydia. We're starting pretty easy, and we're going to work tough to to hard hard things going on in life. And we're going to look at a much different woman besides Lydia, that the gospel message penetrated her heart as well. So in verse 16, in chapter, yeah, picking it up at verse 16, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
and it, <laughs> I find this hilarious knowing Paul. Paul having become greatly annoyed at this, women, at this woman that was following them around and basically mocking them, turned and said to the spirit within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But verse 19, it continues. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Cyrus and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. <laughs> it's like Optimus Prime's in the room. <laughs> and, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So that's, that's the next person we'll look at in just a second. But this girl that's got a spirit of divination, that's mocking Paul and the other disciples around him at the time. And Paul's had enough. He's annoyed, it says. And, and he casts out a demon in the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, she is mocking and being a distraction. She's not supporting. She's trying to distract the message of the gospel going forward. Paul's fed up with it and, and annoyed. He cast out the demon and the mission went on. Now theologians debate, it does not tell us as we read kind of through that section. Um, we know that the demon came out of that woman that was distracting and annoying Paul. We don't hear that if she actually joined the young church or not after that happened. So we're left, there, there are several different arguments on if that happened or not. I tend to agree with the theologians that contextualize that she did because of her encounter with Paul, that she did join the young community there. But that's my speculation going from all the theological study I've done. So if you ever want to look into that, there's fascinating arguments over if, if that happened or not. But we're going to stay with what is printed in Scripture. <laughs> a, uh, and I'm not going to tell you something that's that not there. Only my speculation. So, this woman just considering her demon-possessed, fortune-telling, and a slave girl in the first century and our understanding of those things. Can we relate, though? Can our story be similar either by our own or by something else, a spirit that has taken over us, can we give ourselves over to depravity? Can we be tempted by that that has consumed our lives? And this is funny. We have Lydia, the, the good girl, and already with a religious background that heard the life-changing message of the gospel. This woman was met by Paul and actually mocking and persecuting the message and work of God that somebody else is doing. I know I've I've been in that place. To where, uh, I don't know what it's like to be demon-possessed, either in my mind, but I do know the temptation in giving myself over to something that I put as ultimate in my life other than my relationship with Christ. And I've even, at points, um, with, with some of our other brothers and sisters in other denominations, I have found myself actively because I thought something was preached wrong or taught incorrectly, losing my Christian charity 
and just getting into, you know, the debates and the dogma that can rip us apart. I've been there, and I'm pretty, you all probably have been as well. But that's something to talk about with this, um, this woman. So, but the, beaut- the thing to remember about it all, major theme of Acts, God steps into her mess, her mess right into her chaos, by, through Paul. God, and God also, if we find ourselves in a modern day context, just like the second woman, God steps right into our space and into our chaos as well and brings us back home. That invitation is always there. That's the major, major thing for us to remember as we look at this, this woman. Any comments or questions about her or her, what she went through? <laughs> All right. So we move forward, and I already read this, but a little summary of it. Um, Paul and Silas are arrested after this encounter with that second woman, and this will lead them to a third encounter where it just seems like the harshness of life continues to get harder and harder. Uh, And the rulers decide to put Paul and Cyrus in jail. They call the jailer, and they put them there. And, and then they'll say, we'll deal, deal with it. And the jailer doesn't just put them in jail. He puts them in the innermost cell. And he puts them in stocks and change. And if you know anything about first century jails, they are made kind of dug like a basement. And then the, you know, the light offenders will be put on the, the outermost. And then the, the, who they consider the worst of the worst will be down. It's like death row basically. And they, they made the, the toilet system. It was just draining down to those innermost cells. So Paul and Silas were considered the worst of the worst, and they are violently being persecuted against for, what, what it, for spreading the word of God. Great oppression coming against them. We'll read a little bit more about them and then talk about the, the, the actual jailer of, of this jail. Picking it back up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, historically, this jailers in the first century, they were normally highly decorated Roman soldiers who as a gift of retirement from the front were actually giving the, given these jails to run. And so they had, uh, and as you know, Rome is not known for handing out daisies and stickers to people. 
um, these jailers, typic, it was a t- t- pretty typical thing they saw if they had survived the front lines. They have probably seen and experienced much PTSD as well as spiritual attack upon them. So this jailer, if you go do more study on, in, in this actual context, is a bru- uh, coming from Rome and what he had seen in leading a brutal, brutal, uh, tyrannical regime. Um, there's multiple stories of many cities being destroyed. And as a deterrent, some of these, the soldiers were asked to dismember the bodies of the cities that they had conquered and put them in, on the road in or even at the places of worship to say, don't mess with us. I mean, complete intimidation by, by terror and death and all of those types of things. And there's stories uh, just of crucifixion of thousands of men and women and children. And all of that type of stuff that these jailers came out of. So it doesn't go into much depth what this specific jailer had seen or been a part of. But he had been a part of men that had been on the front lines and seen combat and the issues that came from that. If you did that for an entire uh, military career in, in these days. Um, so we do, from the text, we can gather that there's bitterness and anger in this jailer's heart. And because of putting them, it doesn't say whether or not he was forced by his leaders because he was the head leader of that prison to put them in the innermost sanctum to where the worst of the worst were supposed to be. But we, you put people there to, to devalue them and to dehumanize them in the innermost of those places. And we hear the brother is bitter and angry and violent even into, the, into that darkness Jesus stepped in as, as this continues. God keeps stepping into these messy places. Um, and that's like, have you ever been in that place to where you have turned yourself over to the ways of oppression, violence? I know as a, I don't, as a young man in middle school, I was so glad that the way God worked in my life was I, w- I was a really violent sixth grader. Because my, my year, I'm, I mean, in, in a way I am not proud to talk about only because it glorifies God. I was, uh, my parents announced their divorce and I didn't know what to do with that anger. So sixth grade into seventh grade year, I, st- I just started fighting with people. Like if somebody looked at me wrong in the hall, you know, is that it was fisticuffs, go to the principal and all the shame that came with that. And of course, my parents had no idea what was going on. Because they, uh, I wasn't talking to them because it was their announcement of divorce that caused that. But got, much like Paul that we've heard in some of these people's lives, my youth pastor, Kurt Oheim, he, you know, my mom was like, I have no idea what to do with him and took me to the youth pastor. And God used him mightily in my heart to own that anger, to stop the violence. And then I found a community. That, that thankfully, I don't know where I'd be or what I'd be doing today if I didn't have that moment. It came through violence and bitterness, much like this jailer, but God got a hold of my heart through another person. And that's where I can connect to the idea of what the jailer was doing, is that I, I've had that anger born in me that led to physical wanting to hurt other people. But it was only through the relationship with Christ and in having that community, I was able to deal with that anger of my family falling apart. So I wonder if you have similar 
situations of just the of the gospel coming in and God grabbing your heart and transforming you and bringing you back in to the fold. I mean, it's it makes me want to say Amen, knowing from where where I've come, watching what's happening in people's lives, and then it continues to happen in ours, and that's a it's a great thing to celebrate that helps, uh, you know when. When, today, when the Sundays get long and season after season gets long, this is what we come back to. This is where we hang our hat that we see here in Acts. Any comments or questions? All right, we'll keep going. Let's <laughs> see. Oh, I got an unrelated comment. Okay. Unrelated. I, I just thank you for sharing so many of your personal experiences that you so often do, you know, in sermons and, and just that. Yeah? Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, it's evidence. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> love you all too. All right, so going back into here, we've been saved out of these places, and we know people who are stuck in these places. And now that God has ransomed and rescued us out of these places, he's using that as a testimony to his goodness in each one of us, our ambassadors, into those similar situations. Ones that we hear about or ones that we may not even be able to fathom because of how uncomfortable they are. And I think, as I pointed out, at least for myself, I'm a hybrid of all three of the stories. Lydia, the second woman, and the jailer. And they are all sheep that have gone astray. Each of us are, but the good shepherd comes after us all, never ceasing, always bringing us back into the fold. And one that was stuck in her mockery, we talked about her, she, was, she rescued from it. And then even to the level of the bitter and angry jailer, God stepped in and rescued him from it. From it. And I don't know, there's something even to consider as well, the, you know, the we see the jailer in his, I mean, just getting to the level of his heart, how he was, he thought that he had failed. Sense of duty was probably very important to him. That earthquake or whatever happens. Um, and then they, he, he's, we hear he intends to take his own life because he thought all the prisoners escaped. And we hear the voice of Paul crying out saying, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And yet they didn't leave. And that was the transforming moment. For that jailer, let he didn't have to take his own life because of his failure and his shame of the prisoners escaping. And he says, Paul, I want to know this, Lord, you have been talking about and teaching about, and how may I be rescued? How may I be saved? And we hear not only the jailer, but it has so transformed his life that his entire family became baptized by this whole situation going on. It's just, I love Acts. <laughs> Acts is a... Just how the, how the church grew and spread on the foundation of Christ. So we're going to go into verse 35. Uh, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now mm -hmm. throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. 
So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So now that ends verse 16. And now we, we, that's the last of chapter 16. And now we're going to jump into chapter 17, which is we've been talking about a micro level kind of in individual people's heart. And then Acts 17 kind of leads us to dream a little bigger about God moving in entire cities or governments and things like that. So this is verse one in chapter 17. Now when they had passed through and Amphipolis and Apollonia, tough words, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men out of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason's and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we pick up, and Paul and Silas are now in Berea. And this is uh, verse 10, continuing. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now you are well plugged into the rhythm and the theme that is the book of Acts, where the gospel is fully and faithfully preached, strong, gifted, driven men and women are beginning to flourish against the persecution that was facing them all. And then, uh, let's see, and then picking that up, Paul starts to address cities, really in, in that, that theme of the macro, uh, in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in, at Athens, his spirit was provided within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And this is on that same pilgrimage I went on. I got to be right in this place where, where this happened. And you'll be familiar with this story. Um, Let's see that. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, a spirit provoked within him as he saw the city walls full of idols. So, it's a question kind of pausing there. We hear that Paul's heart was moved to being provoked. And I think the gospel works in, in our lives just the same way. When we see something, our government or our denomination or our church, or whatever it be on a large level, that, that if our hearts are provoked to a movement of justice, that in our own power it would just be self-righteousness. 
Uh, but realizing who we are and that God gives us a voice that we now responding and being provoked that our eyes would be opened to when those situations arise. And so that's, a, that's something Paul's doing on a macro level and we even are and being ambassadors of Christ can look for those situations as well, being able to speak into them. That's why it's important for the heart of the Christian to be provoked, not to go when the brokenness of the world shows itself and like an ostrich, boom, you know, stick, stick our head right in the sand and just let it pass by. But we, being those ambassadors of the gospel, are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit has to be done very carefully, not to, you know, sometimes it can tear organizations apart, but sometimes there is a time to speak. As Ecclesiastes 3, there's a, a time for everything and a season for everything under heaven. So that's, uh, in Acts, we, we see it happening in Acts. And we see that in the actual, what, we're, what we have read and are about to read, for a given area, the the area in Athens, it chose a pursuit that will end in bankruptcy and destruction. And then Paul is moved with godly compassion, sorrow, and love to engage these areas for the good of the people's lives with the gospel of Christ. And this is impossible if you don't see the beauty of all of God's created order. So there's more joy to be had than what dominant culture is saying in the norm. And it's, it's as, this is a lesson that applies just like it did then to us today. And if we always have to walk and figure out and hold in tension the things that gold culture is saying to us, this needs to change versus the foundation of the truth of the gospel and how those things. And yet this is, this is why Jesus had to come. Because this is why if we're, we were given the perfect law to follow in the Old Testament, and if we could do that in our own power and easily say, this is right and that's wrong and it's one voice and we recognize this over here, Jesus would have never had to come and face the cross. And this is why here in this season of Easter, recognizing why it's so important because we live in this life of living in that, te that tension what is appropriate and what, what we know possibly to be right, but how many of us would end up like Paul saying, why do I continue to do the things I know I should not do? And how many we think one truth is here and one is here, and we find ourselves not agreeing or having common ground with somebody else? And how many relationships have done this? Either personally, one-on-one, -on -one, or entire organizations. This is why this being provoked to things and then relying on unity in Christ is, is such a powerful way forward. And what, what Paul, as, as we'll see it evidenced as we continue. So, and Lydia the woman, we'll pick it up in verse 22. So Paul's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. And that's where I've, I've been in this story, up on the Areopagus as Paul is tackling a, one of their cultural norms. And, he's, and he does this brilliantly. I think we, we had this as a lectionary reading uh, two or three weeks ago as well. And I think Joe mentioned it in the sermon. Paul says, up on the Areopagus, to the brilliant minds and philosophers of Athens, that in every way I see that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, if you know, before we go into that proclamation, it's like they were a pan, I mean, many gods, not just the one God of the, of the Jewish that passed to us as Christians. The multiple, they had a God for everything. God of the sun, God of the harvest, God of the sea, God of the fish, God of the trident. And even if they did, just to make sure they were covered with all of their gods, they said, well, the things we're forgetting, we're going to make a temple to the unknown God just to say we're covered. So Paul, taking that cultural norm, um, he takes that framework and he steps into the cultural norm and says, I perceive that you are religious. All these temples I see as we have been walking through the streets and I saw that altar to the unknown God. And this is Paul's, how brilliant he was. It happens I know him. The, one, the God you say you don't know, I do know him. And let me tell you about him. So we don't have Lydia private level anymore. This is addressing the best minds of Athens and Paul bringing it and doing it in this way. In any given culture, um, and this is how we can apply it to our day, in any given culture, there's a framework on which it operates. Um, in modern day, here in where we live, in the here and now, I might argue that our cultural framework at what society is constantly in culture telling us, we have made gods out of comfort and status. Uh, two modern day things to think about. Um, idols where we worship, and, and we're going to set it up in that framework of what church or what temple of what, what God do you worship at. And then you got to realize the things that you worship, you will sacrifice for. And that, that's uh, the, the way of the religious life. So if we're, worship, if we're worshiping at the idol or the altar of comfort, we will want that comfort at all costs, even if it means we start taking advantage of someone else just to get comfort, if that's where we worship. Or a God worshiped in, in uh, how about the success and the, wanting to be the most successful we can, and yet not having an eye open to the need around us, and even stepping on others to earn the success. I know that's one of my majors in college. If I wouldn't have gone into ministry, I thought I, I love football and the Super Bowl, and I thought, oh, if I could be one of those on an advertising team that makes those Super Bowl commercials, I thought that'd be a really cool job. I mean, creativity in abundance and it making people laugh like that. Um, but I did an advertising internship and I didn't realize how dog eat dog that that business is. It's not one firm competing against another to get the bid to make that commercials. You, in, a, in a normal size advertising agency, you'll have four or five creative teams that are fighting against each other under the same company trying to just get the bid to make that commercial. And if you don't do whatever you can do um, to be the best competing with all those around you, you're not going to get paid and you're not going to make it in that industry long. That was my realization of the pursuit of success is what drives um, and in, for, in my experience, drove that field. And I was like, I'm not going to make it here alone. <laughs> it was a, it was a, and I could see how easily with athletics, with our diets, with our school, with our pursuits, 
how the drive for those things can, if we put them ultimate over our relationship with God, and God's not the creativity in realizing the grace he gives us to chase those pursuits, they can become the main thing we're pursuing, and they can dominate our life, no matter what the cost to the others around us, or to ourselves. So it's, it's something to really think about. And so this is uh, kind of closing up with that idea. Verse 23. I think the God who made the world. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. offspring. And you see Paul deconstructing, and then he reconstructs. And how he reconstructs that cultural norm is where we will finish. Here's the reconstruction. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think what the divine being is like, gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And on this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's the final part of the reconstruction. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Areobactite, and, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. That deconstruction with the message of the gospel and transformed hearts, some of those major minds and thinkers, not all, some would be moved to mocking, as we are well aware of in, in this life, but others, they said, we will hear you another time, and ask these questions deeper, and their hearts were changed. From a micro level, to a macro level, to some of the minds that, and hearts that might be hard against the message of God, we see the power it has in people's lives. Verse 30 said, it made a way for us to repent judged the world on one man, Jesus' righteousness, and was a covering for them, and it remains a covering for us. That faith in the person and work of Christ, and we now have the power to repent and to believe with changed hearts. And that, that's a great message with it. That some will believe that there will always be those that mock, but that is the power we get to walk in the transformed heart that makes us ambassadors of continuing the mission of the resurrection. And as the church continues to uh, do what it does and, and prevail, um, even though we might be, not be able to see that perseverance or that prevailing, but it all starts with that message that found a home here, continues to change us, and continues to change everything. Amen. Amen.
Thank you. Any final comments or questions? Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure.